0: I'm Sajah al Today's guest is one of Australia's foremost political commentators and journalists, Barry Cassidy. Barry rose to prominence back in the late 80s as former Prime Minister Bob Hawke's press secretary, a job he calls the most rewarding and interesting part of his life. For almost two decades, he hosted the ABC's Sunday morning political program, Insiders, Now that Barry has stepped away from his journalistic duties, it was a perfect time to get his pointed thoughts on the Australian media landscape, the ABC, and the Politico media establishment. Take a listen. Barry, I'm sitting here talking to you now because back in March, I was lucky enough to be seated at the next table to you and your wife, Heather Hewitt, at Alberto's Lounge in Darlinghurst, and you were very gracious giving me your number when I interrupted your dinner to ask for an interview. But I have to say, a trendy inner-city haunt isn't exactly the kind of place I'd expect you to spend a Wednesday night. or am I being a bit parochial here? Uh,
1: well, probably because it was Sydney, <laughs> and I live in Melbourne, <laughs> where I spend most time. Uh, so, that was a one-off. Um, and that was back in March. It's taken a while, but here we are.
0: Yes, I'm very glad. Now, as well as being the original host of ABC's Insiders program, you're also most well known for being Bob Hawke's press secretary and potentially right-hand man, if that's accurate to say, back in the late 80s to 91. I know that most people want to interview you for your political insights, but today I want to discuss the state of the Australian media landscape because you are quite the doyen of the media here after all. So what I really want to know is, you know, you started your career as this press secretary, then you were on the other side uh, in insiders. And now you've taken a step back and you observe both sides of the fence. How have you seen the role of the press advisor evolve throughout time?
1: Yeah, well, in fact, um, I I saw, saw it from both sides twice. I, I was in the the press gallery in Old Parliament House and then in the executive wing and then later on I was in the executive wing in the new parliament and then back in the press gallery. So I have seen it from from both sides but the the executive side of it, uh, working with the Prime Minister, started in September 1986 and it was extraordinarily different to what it is now. Uh, For a start, uh, the Prime Minister had two press secretaries uh, now, I think they would have 10 or 12 or more in Parliament House and more oh. in the department. Uh, so, a- admittedly, the press gallery wasn't as large, but it was still 200 plus. Two press secretaries, by the time I'd finished, we had three. So, that was a, that was a big improvement. Um, but as a result of that, because there were just the two of us, um, you had no time really to be proactive. They've got loads of time to be proactive now, and a lot of times they're being proactive for, uh, I think, meaningless reasons. Um, but having to serve a press gallery of 200 plus, then you had the kind of radio requirements out there that are totally insatiable TV, uh, press, had organised press conference strategies, and relentless travel. Um, the, the Prime Minister, when he wasn't in Parliament, was, was on the road almost all of the time. So, as I said, there was no chance really to be proactive. We were just dealing with the workload as it came at us. And that's a very different um, um, way of operating now than, than, than what exists uh, today where they have so many press secretaries that they're able to get so heavily involved in media manipulation and they get to the point where they really do think um, they can manage the media. Do you
0: think this amplification of, you know, the Prime Minister's coterie of press advisors and media advisors. Do you think that's given way to some obfuscation of truth?
1: Well, absolutely. And what, what happens now is everything is so stage managed every day. Um, back then, we didn't background or brief in the way that they do now. Um, we didn't uh, um, seek out selected um, publications and, and give them drops, early drops on stories. We didn't really use the what's what's known as the uh, the reward and punishment system, where you choose uh, special journalists, you give them stories, and you expect to get a reward for that. You expect to get a good run. Some of the ministers at the time uh, used that used that method, but the Prime Minister's office really couldn't afford to. Um, so it, it was different. But I think that the other area where where it was remarkably different, really, is in in, in our office in the Prime Minister's office with two press secretaries. We never had any control, nor did we try to exercise any control or autonomy over the other press secretaries in the other offices. They did their own thing; they ran their own race, and we trusted them. and And, and there wasn't this um, this central oversight that you get now. Um, I can't ever recall calling a press secretary other than a matter of just coordinating um, coverage and so on. I can't, I can't, cannot ever recall calling another press secretary, and there's still plenty of them out there to verify this and tell them how to do their job or give them advice. Once or twice I did get a call from a minister's press secretary to try to do that with me, but it's we never did. It didn't operate like that. But that's all changed now. Um, everything now is all of the minister's press secretaries, all the minister's offices are operated out of a central control body run by the prime minister's office, and that just simply didn't happen in the 80s and 90s.
0: When did this all begin and why?
1: Um, Well, I think what – Kevin Rudd is, I think, the first to to change it uh, significantly. Like Bob Hawke, strangely enough, I know it's hard to believe now, but had no real interest in the media or media management. He he was interested in what the media published and how the media performed, but he wasn't interested in trying to manipulate that coverage. Um, Just to give you an example of that, um, at night he would get a note – um, at the lodge or wherever he might be at the time that would tell him of his media engagements the next day. And that's the first thing he'd hear of it. Um, and the whole time that I worked with him, that's how it worked. Our office decided what media he would do and at what time and he would simply comply. And I can't ever recall at any time um, him saying to me that he wasn't happy with that or why are we doing that particular media arrangement. He just totally left it to others because he felt it wasn't as significant as what he was doing, that is running the country. Um, and and it's interesting now that I, I just can't imagine a prime minister these days who didn't get heavily involved um, in 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 the media management side of things, and and would be constantly on the back of, of the press secretaries to do things his way. Um, the uh, our job was basically to try and 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 give a fair shake to the to the media across the board in terms of access. Uh, and so every now and again, we would give the major newspapers um, and their senior reporters um, some access for an interview. We'd provide the major TV programs that were interested in politics with interviews, pretty much in turn, same with radio. And we didn't ban anybody. Um, but that's not the way it works now. Um, when I say that, that, that uh, Kevin Rudd changed things, he it, it, it was an accident of timing in a way because he came into office when the 24-hour news cycle for the first time was up and running and dominating everything and he and his staff had this view that they could manage every second of that um and if if you get up every morning you look in the mirror and you're thinking about your image um then the normal governance of the day the normal management of the country then the normal policy formulation takes a backseat um to this um, political persona that you're trying to arrange for yourself and it it's it became quite obsessive during that period. Just to give an example of that, at uh, at four thirty every morning, the the more junior press secretaries would be up and about, and they'd be collecting all of the uh, all of the, the news from 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 that day, and then disseminating it. And around about six o'clock, the more senior press secretaries would come in and try and get the um the government back on the front foot, and they would they would they would prepare all these awful talking points, and then they would nominate a minister of the day to go out and. And 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 use these these talking points. Now that that kind of obsession I think detracts from what governments really ought to be doing.
0: Now you mentioned political personas and you worked for Bob Hawk, notorious charmer and seducer. What is the place for charisma in a politician now? Because I have to be frank, our last few PMs have been remarkably charmless. Do you agree?
1: Um, yes, um, they're, they're far more low-key than they used to be. Um, I remember when it was um, Hawk versus Peacock in an election campaign and the media was critical of that, saying it was just basically two show ponies at work here. <laughs> and that, I think, was a reflection of their, of their, their approach. They, they were larger than live characters. Um, but they didn't try and manipulate in the way that they do now, and the fact that they they do these constant drops um, to try and I mean the News News Corp for example get just as many drops from this government as they did from the previous one as far as I can see and and why uh, where's the reward in that because um, they're never going to get any positive publicity out of them uh, but still they they entertain this way of, of they think that's the best way to um, to get maximum um, maximum bucks is, is to um, look in, in the lead up to a budget, for example, you you leak some of the stories, to some of the media, and the, so you get a good run on that, and then you're holding back other material. It just seems to me that it's um it's 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 too clever by half that they really do think that they can win over the media when in fact the media is not on their side and never will be. Um, and 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 so it's I think a more honest and, and open approach to uh, to media dissemination and uh, to to information dissemination is a better way to go.
0: Yeah, that whole system of leaking the information to certain journalists. But what's the worst consequence, in your perspective, of this new system?
1: Um, of, of how they're now disseminating the information? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I think what the end result of this, and, and it, it's, um, I, I think it's a, it's a sad development in terms of uh, how political journalism works, um, but it builds in the coziness of the relationship between the politicians and the journalists. And they all depend, they depend so much on one another. And it becomes this, um, this inside this bubble, there's this club, um, where, where there's a, an attempt to mutually benefit one another. And, and so I don't think, um, that a lot of the, the senior journalists are prepared to burn anybody anymore. Um there was a, a a journalist called Alan Ramsey, once who wrote for The Sydney Morning Herald, who was prepared to burn any politician to the ground for the sake of um for, for his analysis, for what he saw as as accurate an accurate reflection of what he thought these characters were up to. You don't get those sorts of people anymore because they all want to protect uh, their relationship um with with these uh, with the prime minister and with the with the key ministers and the and and the opposition front benches and so on. And, and so, the more that the um, the politicians reward them, the less likely the journalists are uh, to 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 hold them to account and, and to and to really dig deeply. The 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 the, the RoboDebt story is a classic example of how um, the press gallery was so remote um, to 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 the public. That they seem to think that there's some kind of great asset about being right where politics is determined, right where the big debates are going on. The opposite is true because in the end you just get caught up on this groupthink that 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 around politicians you're too easily swayed by what they're telling you and, and you're too reluctant um, to really offend anybody. And, and so you had some amazing material coming out every day in the Royal Commission on the robo-debt and only one or two organisations were, were there doing the job day in and day out and reporting this stuff. And I was looking at this and thinking I've never seen a Royal Commission like this. And, and and because the people being impacted were ordinary people, the media wasn't interested. If it was a minister who was demonstrably and clearly in trouble all the way through, or a prime minister, they would have been there every day. Look at the Gillard inquiry all those years ago. That was relentless. They had her on the front page every day and it went nowhere. Um, but it was just stories about ordinary members of the public whose lives had just been so uprooted, who were told that they might go to jail for a debt they didn't even owe, That didn't seem to appeal to them in the same way. And I became incredibly frustrated during that period, especially while the Royal Commission was in progress, that even the ABC uh, wasn't giving this the daily treatment that it deserved. And it was at that point I really started to lose faith um, in in the way that media, media judgments were being made in Canberra.
0: What are, in your opinion, the most significant trends in how the media landscape has changed over the last, say, 10 to 15 years?
1: Uh, well, I think that uh, the big one is News Corp. I think they've become uh, more blatantly propagandist they' they they're, they're more um, um, prepared to simply show their colors and uh, and 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 put out the propaganda on the part of the coalition and and they're just totally you know relentless in you only need to look at if something happens on the labor side of politics, a mini scandal or whatever and then compare it with with something that might happen on the other side and and look at the coverage on either side it's it's demonstrable now there's there's no, really no need to even discuss it and and what what really annoys me about it is that because it's demonstrably so and because they are now part of the propaganda machine and not just here but around the world and particularly of course in the united states um why is it that the rest of the media is 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 still prepared to treat them as if they're not um, and, and they they elevate their propaganda, they elevate their stories in the same way that they would if they were a reputable uh, news organisation, which they're not. And so I think it's high time that the ABC and others took a judgement about what is going on um, in, in the news corp media and then apply some common sense to whether or not they're going to continue to support this kind of material and whether they're going to allow um, their... Um, the more biased reporters uh, on their newspaper um, to, to have the privilege of uh, expanding on their views um, on the ABC and elsewhere.
0: Well, you're no fan of journalist partisanship, but you don't think the ABC ever exhibits that? Because Joseph Gersh, who's a former ABC director, stepped back in March. He said he'd like to see more conservative voices highlighted in the ABC. So don't you think the ABC tends to suffer from that bias?
1: I'd really like to see some examples. Um, I'd really like to hear some examples. I don't know what they're talking about. Who, who now is the um, uh, the host of a major television program on the ABC that they're accusing uh, of being uh, blatantly biased in the way that the News Corp is towards the coalition? Who are they talking about? And, and then give me some examples. I, I did insiders for 18 years, and sometimes that charge was levelled at me from both directions. But I would ask them to give me examples, mm. and none ever came forward. You know, in 18 years on Insiders, not once did we ever have to put out a correction, uh, let alone apologise to a political party for some apparent bias on their part. The complaints never came. We never had to defend it. And that's a long time to be on air um, without ever once in 18 years having to correct the record for anything that we that we did. Um, so my response to these people is to name names. Tell me who you're talking about. Who do you think? is the, the host of a program who you think is, is biased towards the Labor Party and then give me examples.
0: Mm. There's been a massive amount of division, particularly partisan division, fomented in the Australian media in the last eight years or so. Do you see any end to that?
1: Well, I, rather than divisions, I, I think it's a, it's a bit of a one-way operation actually. Mm. Um, like the Australian in particular dishes it out to the ABC all the time and the ABC just cops it. Um, not only do they cop it, they continue to use the, some of the journalists who are most critical of the ABC on, on their programs. Uh, and so um, I, I think it's a one-way street. I think the the the, the Australian, for obvious commercial reasons, they, look there are two big media operations in Australia. The, the ABC is the big broadcaster. It's got enormous reach and a lot of platforms. And because of its monopoly status with the newspapers, um, News Corp is the next big one. And and so they see the ABC as their major competitor. And for all sorts of commercial and ideological reasons, they go after the ABC all the time. They'll elevate a story involving, you know, Emeril Bericci or somebody, and they'll give a story that might be worth two or three articles over a week, and they'll run it for months, and there'll be 40 or 50 articles. And it's just this, this insane obsession um, that goes on. And... I don't think forever the ABC can just sit back and and cop it. I think they they need to, to fight back. You, you get some of it now. Um, the Guardian, for example, who uh, who have nothing to nothing to lose in this in this respect, and um, and and they they are starting to um, to take on uh, News Corp over some of its um, falsehoods and and uh, and the way that they mislead people in some of their coverage. But across the board, it's it's not it's not happening with the rest of the media. Um, they they just simply don't know how to respond to this um, this kind of constant attack.
0: Well, what's your take on the state of the broader commercial media landscape?
1: Um, well, I don't think a whole lot about what's going on with the broader commercial landscape. I think they everybody looks too much like the other um, in a broadcasting sense, and I think that's again something that the ABC has to be wary of. Um, the, the one, the, the most important thing about the ABC in terms of being able to justify its uh, public funding year in, year out, is that it's distinguishable. It must be distinguishable from the others. And there have been some signs over recent years, maybe over the last five years or so, of their program becoming a bit soft in the centre. That I think what's really important is that most of what the ABC has a broader social value than that. And, and so they need to present to, to keep a very close eye uh, to that, to their, to their attitude towards programming um, because there's a reason for the ABC and, and the key reason is that it is different from the commercials. It will opera, uh, offer up material that will be funded um, that the commercials might not fund because it doesn't necessarily attract a wider audience. And the ABC is becoming a little too um, ratings conscious, I think, over the years. And so those kind of programs uh, are not being taken up simply because they don't think they'll rate. Well, if you, if, if you go down that track and you lose sight of the uh, of the more important aim, um, then eventually there will not be a lot of difference between the two. would know, give you an example of the, the, um, when the, of the death of the Queen and, and how the ABC gave over so much of its time um, over a one or two-week period. Uh, it was saturation on on that. Now, if for those who wanted that, they could get it in spades everywhere. So the ABC had to take a slightly different and and um, uh, a sort of less overwhelming approach to it, in my view. But they didn't. They were right in there with with everybody else. And I think the, the ABC was one place where we could have gone to get a bit of perspective around this because the Queen has now died. What does that mean in terms of the Republic and so on? And I don't think there was enough discussion around that. It was like, you know, a bushfire is burning and so the the politicians of the day will say, please don't talk about climate change. We've got a bushfire to deal with. Well, this is what happened when the Queen died. Please, this is the wrong time to be talking about the Republic when it was exactly the right time. And um, But we were just too uh, hesitant, I think, to... Um, to take that opportunity to raise the big issues around that. So we've just got to be very careful. When I say we, I'm not not there any longer, but I think the ABC has to be careful that it is clearly, clearly um, a a different organisation to to the rest and that it's prepared to take on programming ideas that the others would never do.
0: So are you proud of where the ABC is today?
1: I'm I'm proud of where the ABC is in this sense that it is still um, the 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 biggest news organisation in the country. Um, it's um, it 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 turns out so much quality programming. Um, it's it is the most important public institution in the country, in my view. Um, it's it's it reaches more platforms than than any other organisation. Um, but as I say, I mean, you can never rest on your laurels around these kind of things. You, you um, I think internally within the ABC they get a bit offended now by so many former ABC people being critical of some of the things that are going on there. But some of these people were outstanding journalists. Some of them were outstanding administrators and um, um, two or three of them were, were head of news and current affairs and they are now critics of, of the organisation. So I don't think they can just say, oh, well, this is just the old timer saying it was never as good as it's never as good as it was in our day. It's it's not that. Some of them have got a lot to offer, and I think they should be more open sometimes to to hear precisely what it is um that, that annoys so many of those former staffers these days.
0: Is the ABC upholding its status as a cultural institution is doing a better job of that now or one or two decades ago, do you think?
1: Uh, well, it's not as good as it was, but again, you know, I, I risk you know being one of those who you know never as good as it was in my day. But I don't think it is quite the cultural institution that it was. I don't think it's quite got the courage um, that it used to have, and I think it's become just a little too arrogant and authoritarian in in some respects.
0: What do you mean um, authoritarian?
1: Well, in the sense that they they can do no wrong in their minds. Um, they are so overly defensive of, 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 of everything and they seem to have the, the open mind idea and, uh, you know, just, just for example, I know there's a lot of horrible stuff goes on in Twitter, but to say now that they're, they're, they're closing off all of these um, um, access, that the people the people have access to the ABC in a variety of ways. They don't write letters anymore. They don't make phone calls. But one way they can do it is through social media and, and now that's been locked off, um that they that they're not interested in those views anymore, on the basis that too much of it is vile. Well, a lot of it is vile, that is true. But I wonder whether they thought through here about how frustrating that can be for those who are not vile, those who just have something to offer. and And now those opinions will never reach the ABC, they have to find different ways of uh, of, of reaching them. And I think a publicly funded organisation, ought to be open to feedback. And that's all it is in a lot of cases is feedback. I I sympathise for those journalists and there are three or four of them in particular who cop it and they cop it hard. Um, But you you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are things that have got to be protected and one of those is is the ability uh, for for ordinary viewers to have feedback directly to the ABC and now that's been lost in in a lot of ways.
0: What might be the ramification of that?
1: Oh, I think just frustration on behalf of uh, some of the viewers, and 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 you know, you really do need constant feedback because you know, not everybody in these positions are experts. They they really should be taking soundings uh, from the public, and I, I would like to hear from them now as to, to how they how they actually plan to do that. Um, how do they stay in touch with their audience if the audience is prevented from breaking through the social media and reaching them in that way? Mm.
0: I want your perspective as a former ABC insider. Who do you think was the most effective managing director in your time?
1: Um, I would say Mark Scott, and I'm probably not um, alone in that because I think, um, well, certainly based on conversations that I had around the place, um, he um, he was very well regarded by the public, I, I, by by the by the staff, um, it's. I think with him, it was the the, the difference. I think between say Mark Scott and, and a Michelle Guthrie, for example, is that I think Peter Manning, who was head of news and current affairs, once said of uh, Michelle Guthrie that um, she was badly treated, but not for being sacked, but for being hired in the first place. <laughs> and what he meant by that is is that she was the wrong fit. Mm. for that kind of job he had great administrative ability she ran google um she 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 um but what happened is that she was so intensely involved in internal restructuring and management styles and so on what she didn't have was the experience in tv and radio and particularly in journalism and and that's what mark scott had in spades he he had that um at, at least whether he had it in practical terms in the past, and he did in some respects, but he learnt it very, very quickly. And people knew that, and the people that that work with him knew that he understood um, what we were doing and what um, what our environment was all about. So I would say that during that period is when, the period when the, the staff probably had the most faith in, uh, in the administration and direction of the ABC.
0: Mm. And Now, Michelle Guthrie obviously we now know scored very poorly in parameters like arrogance, autocracy, criticism and distance. She was in a 90th percentile. That was in a survey as part of a submission to the inquiry, you know, after her sacking. What do you, if you could pinpoint the specific things that really went wrong in her tenure, what were they?
1: Well, I think it was that lack of experience in the key areas. But apart from that, Look, she was strong on digital channels and and on an eye view and she got that and she was really trying to push all of that um, and she, but she was unlucky in this sense too that she came in at a time when when the um, when, when the government of the day was antagonistic towards the ABC so it's never it's, it's never a healthy environment to try and operate within and so th- there were budget cuts going on at the time and and she was introducing more platforms but was having to do it with fewer staff because of the, the budgetary problems. Um, and so journalists, for example, were, were asked, being asked to take on more responsibilities, but they were given less time to meet those responsibilities. Um, so she was unfortunate in that sense, I think, in in, in terms of timing. But uh, no, I, I go back to what Peter Manning says. I think she was just the wrong fit for that role.
0: Mm. So I understand you were a fan of her focus on digital. That's now seen a renaissance under David Anderson. Are you still as supportive of the digital shift?
1: Absolutely, always have been. Um, Look, going back ten years, I can recall talking to newspaper executives about this and saying to them that you've got to get a move on because digital is going to be everything. It's 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 the future, and there will be nothing but digital and. They were reluctant. They were trying to hold on to some of their old ways and the journalists just wanted the, the newspaper in their hands in the way that they'd always always had it before. The ABC, being a broadcaster, of course, so you'd expect this, but they were they were right on it. And to this day, I think they're still on the right track. And when they recently announced their digital first strategy, I had no problem with any of that and I think that's good and that's where they ought to be headed. What I couldn't understand around all of that is... Um, um it, it is the 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 staffing arrangement that 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 went with it I, I you know it's you can have a digital first strategy but why did andrew proben have to go what what why why in order to have a pure digital first program do you have to sack your chief political correspondent in canberra and especially andrew proben who showed more flair and interest in 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 in, in in the digital world than than most of us. And so that's why I was critical of that. I, I just I thought, just explain to me how Andrew Proben doesn't fit into that format. Um that, that that's what bewildered me, but but I'm I'm right behind the digital strategy, of course.
0: Yeah, well it is an ironic one because the rationale for the redundancy was to make way for more social media and digital roles to progress that strategy. Do you think the redundancy of Proben was a genuine one?
1: I have no inside knowledge to that. It just seemed very peculiar Mm. at the time uh, that they would single out one person and saying in order to hire um, more people to do work in the digital area that this guy has to go. Um, because that role will be done um by others it's um you you can't you, you just have to have a captain of a ship in a place like the press gallery in canberra and every bureau there needs to be a captain somebody that um somebody that is demonstrably the head of the bureau and and the politicians the staffers the public the viewers everybody knows that and and i, I just think that was um that was an odd step but it just just as the the move to um away from um, state-based bulletins on Sundays, which I think they're now reversed, but that was never going to work. I mean, can you imagine in, in Perth, for example, on a Sunday night and, and you get this national news and you're getting rugby league out of Sydney and probably no mention of a of, of an AFL game in Perth, which is uh, anyone interested in sport in Western Australia, that's all they're interested in. Mm. They're the Eagles or the Dockers game on a Sunday and if that wasn't there, they would just say, this is a joke, this is not our news and uh, there are, it Australia is not – it's a very, very difficult country to try um, and, and present something national, uh, and especially when it's done out of Sydney where um, – even now it's a small thing, but whenever you see a, a national bulletin out of Sydney, rugby league is the first sports story and then Aussie rules. It's just it's done that way, right? Now, why? Um, wouldn't you pick the strongest story, the strongest sports story that day or would you go with – the? A sport that has the biggest um, attendances, or the biggest television audiences, or whatever, but it's just it's it's that Sydney mentality that they've never been able to break, um, and, and they they've got to put themselves in the minds of, um, of of the other states and 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 think like you might in Melbourne or Adelaide or Perth. I know when I first started up Offsiders, um, I would walk into the office at five o'clock on a, on a Sunday morning and I'd see the Offsiders staff reading the Herald Sun and I'd say, "Throw that away, read the Telegraph." You're in Melbourne. You know what's going on in Melbourne. What you've got to do is acquaint yourself with what's going on in Sydney. So that's where you should be spending your time. The rest is instinctive. It's all in your head, and you have to do things like that. You have to make conscious decisions to try and and think nationally, and think what would Melbourne want, what would Adelaide want, what would Hobart want, um, and not just get caught up in the in the Sydney mentality the whole time. And unfortunately, that's that's becoming more the more the go than. Than less. I mean, the concentration in Sydney, I think, is um, is greater now than it was even five years ago.
0: Mm. Well, in that event, I want to know your thoughts on the move of seventy five percent of the ABC's operations to Parramatta. The whole, you know, imperative of the move is to get them out of this like latte sipping enclave and amongst the proletariat, <laughs> which it's crass to say, but it's <laughs> effectively the motive. Do you really think the move is going to change anything culturally?
1: Well, isn't that interesting? Like they moved insiders to Canberra, and then the praise for that is now we're at the heartbeat. This is where it all happens, right? In in the in the the capital of politics, where all the big decisions are made. When some programs are better off out of there, and I would say the same with this this argument now that this is somehow going to make them more conscious of how people live in the outer suburbs of Australia. It, it was always tokenism, and it was always a political imperative on the on the part of the coalition that this happened. Um, and the ABC folded this, I think it, it, was, it was a poor move. It's It, it won't achieve much. It, it, it won't be functional, and I think it'll be harder to get good people into the studios when they really need them um, because most of the, the, the people that they're looking for these days anyway are, um, the, you know, the, the movies and shakers and so on are, are based in the city or they're there most of the time it's 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 going to make it operationally i think it's going to make it very difficult
0: well yeah precisely and also getting in studio guests to make the trek all the way up to Parramatta might be an issue
1: yeah they they would say oh well we'll get guests in the western suburbs of sydney well you know what about the western suburbs of melbourne (laughs) are they going to be included in the capital programs as well it's (laughs) it's just it it just doesn't make sense to me it's um and and apart from that, I, I, I think it'll it'll impact on the quality of the staff um, that the ABC retains over the next three or four years, um, because a lot of people won't won't simply won't want to move out there. They they live elsewhere. They they set up their lives based on the fact that they thought they'd be working from uh, um, inner Sydney. Um, you know, I, I know that if you if you said to the Melbourne operation, right, you're all going out to Frankston. Um, or broad meadows or somewhere. Well, I, I just don't think a lot of those people would stay. they They don't want to work out in in, in those places, and so it will affect the quality of stuff.
0: There's one area where the ABC seems to keep on flailing. They've got this existential problem of retaining the under thirty audience. Do you really think the ABC can maintain generational relevance, and how?
1: Uh, they can through um, through some of their digital programming um, and have programs that are designed uh, to reach that audience. What they can't do is 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 um, attract young people to free-to-air viewing, appointment viewing. They're not interested and they never will be, and no matter what they do. Um, so you're wasting your time even trying to attract younger people to watch free-to-air TV. I don't know any who do <laughs> regularly anymore anymore. That um, they're looking for other things, and so the trick for the ABC is to um, is to follow them, um, see where they're um, where they're going and what they're looking for, and uh, and and trying to become part of that game. But um, no, the, the free to wear boot has flown long ago.
0: I want to move on to our current communications minister Michelle Rowland. What do you make of her proposed policies, like this misinformation bill and an? ban on gambling advertising, what's your perspective?
1: Uh, well, I, the first thing i would say about Michelle Rowland is that she knows her stuff. Uh, she's been around uh, broadcasting as an issue, as a political issue and as a public policy issue for a long time. Um, and so I think um, uh, broadcasters ought to be pleased they have somebody in the job with that um, level of ability. Um, look, the misinformation bill is um, – it's, it's to give the uh, the um, ACMA, the, the Australian Communication and Media Authority, the, the powers to, um, to crack down on digital platforms to get things wrong, basically, for spreading disinformation. Now, that's a worthwhile course. Uh, that is really worthwhile, and it's worth putting a lot of effort into it, as difficult as it can be. Um, the these platforms have to be held to account otherwise lies and falsehoods are going to flourish and to say that it's too hard leave it alone um is to sign up to that is to sign up to a future where it's only going to get worse in terms of how false information um can can flourish uh the 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 problem of course around this is um the, the, the criticism that comes to the government at times is that government shouldn't, shouldn't determine what is true and what is false. Well, they're not, and they're appointing a regulator, and at some point somebody has to determine that. Otherwise, how would this harmful content ever be removed? I mean, and what is the alternative? What is the alternative? Just open slather around this. Um, so all strength to their arm on this one. I know that it's tough. Um, on advertising, I'm, I'm not as supportive of, uh, of what the government has said and done to this point. Um, I, I feel very, very strongly around this that, that um, I think young lives are being impacted. I think um, on gambling ads, I think they're insidious. I, I'm somebody who actually has a bet occasionally, um, but I don't need a gambling ad to tell me when or how to bet. Um, it's it's you now hear kids as young as nine or ten framing contests, football contests, and so on in terms of the odds, the monetary language they use, that you know the Collingwood are a dollar fifty favorites. That's how they kind of see the game. Uh, that that's the extent to which how it's it's gotten into the heads of kids. Uh, there is no need for it. Like there was no need for for tobacco advertising, there was no need for um, for alcohol advertising. Uh, Australia led the world in terms of putting those horrific images on cigarette packets. We've got to have the courage to go just as far with this because the, the, the gambling industry can still exist in, in every form that exists now, but why should they be allowed to advertise and, and, and get into the heads of kids? I, I think at this stage what they're saying is that they're, going to, they're thinking of banning advertising either side of sporting matches or something for an hour or so. Um, that's a bit of a cop-out. I'm with Zoe Daniel, the um, teal independent from Melbourne on this, and she wants an outright ban on, on, on gambling ads, yeah, on radio, TV and streaming services, and uh, and, and why not? Why not? What's, what's, what's the argument um, with, that it's going to somehow impact on the gambling industry and jobs will be lost? That's, that's the last refuge of every scoundrel on these issues, that, that jobs will be lost if you, if you do the right thing. I think you just do the right thing.
0: Mm, did your antipathy towards wagering begin on your first day of the job with Bob Hawke having to fish out his newspapers with all the horses and information he'd made on them bets?
1: Yeah, nobody who was outright opposed to gambling would have sat well in Hawke's office, I can tell you. Mm. <laughs> it was very part of his life. So I'm not coming at this from any Puritan yes. point of view. I just don't <laughs> like the fact that kids are seeing gambling ads the whole yeah. time. And and the problem. I don't trust politicians. I wouldn't have trusted Bob Ork or Paul Keating or John Howard or any of them, any more than the the, the current crop. Because I don't trust them because they're dealing here with powerful, cashed up organisations, and politicians like powerful, cashed up organisations because they help fund their election campaigns.
0: Mm. Okay, I want to go back to this misinformation bill first. Now you say that some someone's got to deal with it and it's going to be a regulatory body, but do you trust that ACMA? Do you have faith that ACMA can discern what is and isn't misinformation or disinformation in a bias-free way?
1: Uh, I'd, I would really want to be persuaded of that. Mm-hmm. and I'd want to be persuaded of, of how the new regulator plans to work because it's it is a tough job, but somebody has to make the calls between lies and the truth, and, and just to accept that, well, the public can make up their own mind, the public doesn't need a steer. So many of these people who report these days are in, a, are in a privileged position of knowing what the facts are. They've looked at it, they've examined it, they've seen the fact checking. Those people have to step up as well and do their job. Like There's a tendency in the media these days that in, in the interest of balance, somebody can tell something that you know to be false, that you know to be misleading, certainly, certainly misleading. And they don't correct it. They leave it in the package, the, the news report or whatever, in the interest of balance. You can't do that. You, you can't allow misleading information to go out there when you, as a, as a trained and experienced journalist, know that, that, that whoever's saying this is, is deliberately misleading. So the media has to have more courage around this as well. And I know that it's tough. It's going to be tough on a regulator. But at some stage, somebody has to do it.
0: Barry, do you have hope for the Australian media industry? Do you think it's going to get better or worse with this, you know, heightened focus on digitisation, AI, social media?
1: Um, no, I, I haven't got great hopes. I've, I'm not overly optimistic. Um, part of the problem is um, that original journalism is is under threat. Um, that there are fewer people out there actually doing the original journalism and way too many people then taking that original journalism from others and then amplifying it analyzing it beating it to death right that's that's their jobs to sit back and just pick pick up the pieces that others so we need we need more original journalists journalists who are, who, are, who are out there digging up the facts like you, you talk about the, some of the policy areas the government's involved in now and 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 one of those is around that the the, the media, Bargaining code, right? Where the, the large tech companies are now, like Google and Facebook, are paying news, uh, the news publishers in Australia. Um, when they use their material. Now that, that was one of the better developments that we've seen in a very long time. Um, Rod Sims, who I actually worked with in Bob Hawke's office all those years ago, was pretty much conceived this idea through the C, and and he says now that the imbalance has been addressed and, and that um content is now being rewarded. And and well, this is not exactly his words, but it's not given over to the freeloaders and, anymore. They're, they're having to pay for it. And the direct result of that was um that these organisations had to pay media media organisations in Australia for this work. The, the the key thing was that that money didn't go to the budget bottom line, and in most cases, it hasn't. It's funded journalism. The Guardian, for example, increased its staff its staffing by fifty percent as a result of this. That was huge. That's massive. Um, it's so Google and Facebook are absolutely loaded. And the rest of the media can do with a few crumbs falling off their table. When I say a few crumbs, it was something like $200 million a year collectively. And that makes a hell of a difference um, to Australia's local media. And they are, by and large, the ABC has done it, have have, uh, significantly increased the number of rural journalists. And that's so important in terms of of the local coverage um, that we now get around the country. So that's been a great development and um, it was sort of, Accidental in a way, I suppose, but but that surely um, um, pays well for the, the future of the media in Australia.
0: Mm. We recently had uh, Chris Jans, who used to run publishing at Nine and is now the, one of the founders of this new news finance news startup Sire, and he had a really glum prediction for you know what would happen once the renegotiations of the news media bargaining code would take place next year. Are you optimistic about what the outcome might be?
1: I, to, to, to be honest I don't know how the negotiations are going around the bargaining code, Co but I do know that um, the big news organizations in the UK in the United States and Canada are sitting up and taking a very close look at what Australia mm. has done around them um, and and if if they come on board and and they put significant similar pressure on on, on the, the big organizations like Google and Facebook that can only be a good thing and 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 so you know he he's probably better place in a business sense to know what's what's going on and why he's being pessimistic about this but from what i've seen up until now it's been a significantly positive development for the australian media and and hopefully they can lock it in and uh, and make it part of the uh, part of the landscape
0: now barry i want to end our conversation with a question that we ask all of our guests and that is what would your critics say about you and what would your supporters say about you <laughs>
1: um well you see it's not a hypothetical question because um, they've said a lot on Twitter <laughs> and and so I had a pretty good sense of uh, of, of what they thought um, and look from my point of view I, most of the feedback was was fairly positive i think I think they thought uh, a couple of things that I think came up a lot um, in terms of describing me, and now I'm forced to describe myself, I suppose, <laughs> in the same way. But that that I tried to be fair and and, and give everybody a, a fair go. Um, but what what I've always worked hard at since I went into political journalism was to take the audience with me and not assume the kind of knowledge that those who work in the industry the whole time and are 24 hours in this sort of session with politics that you can't assume um, that sort of level of knowledge. So you've got to take your audience with you and properly explain the issues before you then start dissecting them. And so that's something that I've always worked very hard at. And, um, and, and so trying to make, in a way, use the program as a kind of a learning experience. Um, and you can do that without any sense of bias or, or lack of balance. I've, I've had taxi drivers say exactly that to me. You know, taxi drivers that have only been in the country for four or five years have said that they they learn a lot um, <laughs> from Australian politics by watching insiders, and I like hearing that. The critics, I, I copped it from both sides, um, probably more so from conservatives saying that because I once had a, uh, work with Bob Hawke that I had a, a labour bias, but again, I was more interested in examples than just this notion that 40 years ago I worked with Bob Hawke for a while and therefore I'm biased. Um, so that's what I was more interested in than the than the sort of just broad brush criticism. Give me the give me the examples, and they didn't often come. Um, no, no. Apart from that, um, I have to say that I c- compared with especially some of the women at the ABC over the years. I got off pretty well scot free in terms of uh, having trolls and you know people coming after me. That that really didn't uh, didn't happen.
0: Well, Barry, it's been so excellent to chat. I'm so happy I uh, fortuitously ran into you.
1: You had the courage and the nerve to come up and say, "Hey, gosh,
0: I felt a bit terrible uh, about." Like,
1: well, you shouldn't, because that's the way uh, that's the way journalists should operate.
0: Well, thanks for your time.
1: You bet. Thanks. See you.
0: Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back with more soon. Unmade podcast edit by Abe's
1: Audio.